Hello everybody and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, the march to WrestleMania continues as we tackle the crown jewel of the 1980s wrestling boom. It's WrestleMania 3 and it's bigger, it's better, it's badder. Oh god, yes, it is all of those things. This show is exactly what the other two shows were not. It is a spectacle, it is amazing, and it has something on it you'd actually want to watch. Yes, th this is the moment where the show lives up to the hype. It's instead of being a show that they need to push out and market as if it's going to be the greatest show ever, it just is the greatest show ever. And I, I'm just going to hit you with this right off the top because I think it's the most important question to take away from this. Is Hogan versus Andre the biggest match in wrestling history? Yeah, I think it has to be because I don't, I can't, nothing else jumps out at me immediately. Like Austin and Rock, Hogan and Sting. Yeah, no, I, this is such a clash of icons. It's so iconic. It did such huge business. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, these guys were so credible and so protected for so long. And when you put them against each other and somebody was finally going to lose, you just could, can't top it. And it's kind of everything that Hogan and Sting wasn't. Because yeah, we get a clean finish. The cleanest of clean. Squeaky clean finish. Yeah, they don't try to protect Andre at all, which is 100% the right call. Um, it, the big thing is, nobody's ever seen either of these guys get beat. Like, unless you were at Shea Stadium in 1980 to see their first match, which, well, not their first match, but you know their previous big match, which was subsequently disappeared from history and never mentioned again. You know, you've never seen Hogan get pinned. You've never seen Andre get pinned unless, you know, you saw him wrestle Antonio Inoki in Japan a few months before this. You know, to even a pretty diehard wrestling fan, these guys both were undefeated at this point. And you got to remember, like, kind of the revisionist history machine that WWE would run is that as far as people who were watching the television program were concerned, Andre the Giant had not been beaten in a wrestling match in 20 years. Like, it was to that degree of unbeatable. Like, he hadn't even lost a fucking battle royal. He had, like, it, it's, you could not beat Andre the Giant. So when he was put up against Hulk Hogan, it was as if it was saying, like, well, uh, I, I guess Hulk's actually going to lose. Because it was unthinkable that somebody could actually pin Andre the Giant. It was unthinkable. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason they needed such a massive main event was... They were running an absolutely massive stadium. Uh, Vince decided he wanted to run a big stadium. He chose the Pontiac Silverdome, which was the largest indoor arena in the country at this point. Um, one thing that motivated them to choose Detroit was by this time they're starting to get kind of starting to get some of the Nielsen reports of where they're doing the strongest on their pay-per-views and their syndicated TV, and they were finding that. Detroit was one of their hottest markets, but really it's just Vince being Vince and being like, what's the biggest place we can do? Silverdome's the biggest. I mean, at this point, there's very few other options. Um, if you're going to, the only domes in the country at this point were the Silverdome in Detroit, the Superdome in New Orleans, the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, um, Astrodome in Houston. I think it's that's it. Um, yeah, Indianapolis is the other one, although that may not have opened yet. Um, but and I mean, 
You'll three of those are in the south. Yeah, they're not gonna. <laughs> they can't. They couldn't do a crowd like that. I mean, they could. They were having house shows in the south, but they couldn't even draw five thousand people around this time. They had not taken over the south yet. So really, I mean, you can't run Chicago because there's no indoor stadium there, and the weather would be such a crapshoot in um, you know late March, early April. So. If you're going to run a big giant dome stadium at this point, if you're the WWF, it's really got to be Detroit. And I mean, let's talk about the hubris of this because they've they've run shows that were very very big before, like the Shea Stadium shows, huge. Uh, the big event in Toronto the year before did like how many? Um, almost seventy thousand, over sixty thousand. That's a crap load. But like yeah. the hubris of this. To be like, let's go in like an eighty-five thousand seat arena or stadium, and we're just gonna—we're not gonna curtain anything off. We're just gonna try to sell every seat imaginable. Yeah, um, and they didn't book the stadium until January. Like, That's crazy. It's late January. Vince says we're gonna run Detroit. He calls up his events guy at two o'clock in the morning because he's Vince McMahon. Damn it! Tells him. Hey, first thing in the morning, come to the office, get a check, and then we're going to fly you to, to Detroit on my private plane so you can book the stadium. Guy comes to the office, Vince hands him a $50,000 check, tells him, you know, get me the Silverdome for this date. They also had to buy out some convention, which was scheduled to be at the Dome that weekend, so that cost him a little bit more, but, you know, all in. And, yeah, the event staff asked him, well, okay, what do you want to format it for? Are we going to try to do... 30,000, 40,000, 50. He's like, no, uh, we're going to sell it all, however many we can fit. And that must have seemed like madness and to the extent that like, I'm kind of amazed they even went along with it. Because, I mean, it, it costs... I, I wonder, does it cost the stadium itself money in order to run a show of that size? I mean, obviously they're being paid, but like they must have been like, there's no fucking way you guys are going to sell this place out. Yeah, I'm sure... I mean, the costs are the personnel, which the stadium will right. provide. I assume WWE, that's part of the part of the rental fee is the ushers, the security, the people working, concessions, parking, all of that. The parking. Can you imagine trying to park your car at this event? Well, I mean, it's, you know, Lions games consistently sold out. You know, this has, you know, thousands more people on the floor than a Lions game did, plus... I think a lot of people who didn't have tickets, I'm sure, showed up to try to scalp tickets because um, part of the way they were going to induce people to buy tickets was they blacked out the entire state of Michigan for the pay-per-view. You could not buy this pay-per-view if you were in Michigan, and I believe there were no closed-circuit locations either. You were either going to Pontiac to go to the stadium or you were not seeing WrestleMania. And it must be said that I live in Toledo, Ohio, obviously. And yes, you can feel sympathetic for me. And now that you know that, um, which is literally right across the border from Michigan. I know dozens of people who went to this show. It, it wasn't just something that pulled from Michigan. It pulled in people from everywhere. Like there were people I, I've heard from a lot of people who made like road trips from like as far away as like Iowa as far away as like Missouri to come to the show because it was really the only time you'd get an event of this magnitude in this part of the country. Like it doesn't really happen. Yeah. And that's one thing that's different is I guess I think this is the first WrestleMania that was drawing people in at least regionally, but 
now WrestleMania is an international event. Like people are literally flying into WrestleMania from all over the world because not only is there WrestleMania, there's dozens of indie shows, there's the Hall of Fame, there's NXT, Raw and SmackDown the next two nights. There's an entire it's like a wrestling holiday. There's so much to do. All the you know, all the podcast live shows and that sort of thing. Here it was one show. And mostly they're just going to get people from the Detroit metro area, which is nowhere near the size of Chicago, where the year before they could only draw, you know, 8,000 people at the Rosemont Horizon for that part of WrestleMania. They drew 40,000 people without selling out any three of the venues, the previous WrestleMania. And those shows were in Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago, all of which are dramatically bigger than Detroit. Just another case of that brilliant Vince McMahon hubris to be like, eh, you know, there's no reason to think we could possibly do this, but you know what? Fuck it. Let's go. Let's go for it. 80,000. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything else that you're going to go into this with other than Hogan versus Andre. There's no other no. match anywhere near, near that size. But the one thing they tried to do that they didn't succeed was they tried to get Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, this is documented in... Um, I think the book is called WrestleMania, the the official insider's story. It's by, um, I believe, Zane Bresloff, who worked at WWE for a long time, uh, documents kind of the first 16 WrestleManias and facts and such. I mean, so Jesse Ventura had done the Predator movie with Arnold. Um, I think was shooting The Running Man with him around this time. So had the relationship, made the connect. Vince negotiated with him. They couldn't come to terms. Really financially, I don't think it's plausible that it would work out for both parties. Arnold was just too big at this point. But, I mean, he was such a big name that, like, you can only imagine. Like, he would... Him at that time, is that the biggest movie star that they would have ever had access to? Um, I mean, yeah, it depends what you would say about The Rock at this point. I think The Rock is the 2018 version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but, and I've always considered Arnold to be kind of like the perfect wrestling celebrity other than the fact that he's kind of short, but like, absolutely. I mean, Arnold, if he had chosen to be a pro wrestler, I think would have been an absolutely massive star. Absolutely. And like his movies cater to like the exact same audience that you're aiming for with a wrestling show. Yeah. So it's kind of remarkable to me that he kind of barely did any wrestling appearances over the years, just like a, you know, random raw or SmackDown appearance here and there. I'm, I guess it just did by the time his star had diminished, he had gotten too old to actually wrestle. But I guess that's the question is if he's on this show, what is he doing? Like is cause that's you a good question. I mean, probably just did you probably have it probably kind of redo WrestleMania one and you have him and Hogan team up. Maybe it's like him and Hogan against Andre and somebody or I don't know, but yeah, I think he's got to be, you, you want him to wrestle. You got to have him in the main event. And is, I guess it's one of those things, like, is him and Hogan against Andre and I, I don't even know who, Ventura, is that a bigger match? Oh, Obviously, awesome. it, it is on a, on a mainstream level, but as a wrestling match, I'm not sure if it even is. It's not as big as it's not as big of a wrestling match, but it would have gotten so much mainstream publicity that right. yeah, I think it would have been even bigger. Yeah, I think you're right. Shit. Um, but, you know, couldn't get Arnold, so instead... They turn Andre heel for the first time in his career. Um, it's kind of a cleverly done slow burn storyline. It really starts back in 86 when Andre is 
kayfabe suspended for no showing some shows in reality he's off shooting the princess bride uh this is also when they start doing the uh the machines gimmick where andre is giant machine under a mask and bobby heenan can never get the mask off him to prove it uh, one of my favorite kind of dumb wrestling storylines is always when the guy, <laughs> the guy coming back under the mask is just like the height of cheesy wrestling to me. And amusingly, Hulk Hogan would later on do this exact same gimmick as Mr. America. Yeah, he was also one of the machines. They do Hulk machine on some house shows. Hulk machine is a great wrestling name, and I encourage someone else to adopt it. <laughs> Um, his suspension was just sort of quietly lifted and Jesse Ventura said he thought something fishy had happened. There's some good segments of Jesse Ventura kind of doing the Corey Graves before the Corey Graves and having the scoop and doing some investigative report. And, um, he, Ventura said that Andre wasn't at the hearing when Andre's suspension was lifted, but Bobby Heenan was raising the question of what was going on here. And then on the January 17th episode of Superstars, uh, Hogan is presented with a trophy for being the WWF champion for three years. This is on Piper's Pit. Andre comes out and just says something like, Oh, three years. Long time to be champion. And walks away. Um, The week after this, Hogan gets Andre a trophy for his 15-year undefeated streak. And then Hogan comes out and starts talking about himself, leading Andre to just walk away. Uh, the week after that, Jesse gets the two trophies out and shows that the Hogan trophy is slightly taller than the Andre trophy. Considering this is one of the biggest feuds, and honestly, this next segment we're going to talk about is one of the best and most memorable of all time. This is kind of a really stupid way to start a wrestling angle, right? Just like... Oh, hey, Hogan, you've been champion for three years. Here's a trophy. We never did that before, but hey, we had a trophy sitting around. Yeah. And Andre, here's a trophy, but your trophy is slightly smaller. <laughs> Just like, all right. That's the that's the so, straw that broke the camel's back. The famous segment you're referring to is on the February 6th episode of Superstars. Um, Piper brings Andre and Hogan together to settle this, but Andre comes out with Bobby Heenan and he might as well be with the devil himself. You can see the color go out of Hogan's face when he sees Andre with Heenan. And he's just like, what, what are you doing with him? What's going on here? And they had kind of, I don't know exactly how canon this is, but they had kind of made Hulk Hogan and Andre, if not so much friends, at least like, trusted top baby yeah, faces they together. Were fr- they were friends in the way baby faces are all friends. I mean, Andre was one of the guys who celebrated with Hogan pouring champagne on him after he won the title in 84. Uh, he, he and Andre teamed up on a Saturday night's main event back in the fall before this against um, Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy. I'm sure they had teamed on some other house shows. Close enough. They're, fr- they're friends in the way Hogan is friends with, you know, hillbilly jim and brutus beefcake and all the other baby faces and while andre has been heel other places in wwf he had kind of always been a baby face like in new york he was just seen as a baby face attraction yeah big lovable giant yeah so the idea that he would turn heel and join heenan even with the seeds planted was one of those kind of unthinkable things to the extent that hogan's reaction kind of was meant to mirror the crowd's reaction and that's that was the reaction like what are you serious 
not Andre, no. Yeah. And so Andre says, I am here to challenge you for the world championship at WrestleMania. And then he goes to rip off Hogan's shirt, but also rips off Hogan's crucifix, drawing blood from his chest. This is one of the greatest uses of accidental symbolism in wrestling history. To just literally... It's so amazing. And it also just drives home that Andre is crazy dangerous. Like, this match was meant to be shown as a death sentence for Hulk Hogan. Like, Andre the Giant will goddamn kill you. It's over with. Your your reign is done. His fingernails. Yes. That's how lethal this man is. He ripped your shit off in front of you, and you you could do nothing. (laughs) So, the week after this, they again have Piper's Pit. All 80s storytelling is done on Piper's Pit. There's no other way to move the story forward. The amazing thing is I watched all these segments, and they're all two minutes long. It's you know two minutes out of the 45 minutes of TV that week is devoted to Piper's Pit, but this is where all the real action is. Which is so phenomenal, um, because you see all these clips and you assume there's more to it. But what would take them like a 40-minute talking segment today takes Roddy oh Piper 30 seconds. Yeah, like they just they they have they have a lot of TV, but the real show is superstars, and it's only forty five minutes, and they have to advance all their storylines. So yeah, there's no time for fifteen minute in the ring talking segments. We're gonna do this in less than five minutes. So Piper brings out Hogan and kind of playing off their old rivalry. He starts needling Hogan. He's not ready, no, not taking any bullshit. He wants to know. Are you going to fight Andre at WrestleMania? And what does Hogan say? Yes! Yeah, just like the the epitome of like Hulk Hogan great overacting here. Oh my God. You could hear this. this, The crowd reaction to this is massive. Like they pan the crowd and the crowd is going insane when he says this. Because he's a stupid baby face who was taking on a suicide (laughs) mission. Like I, I... Again, I say this all the time, but like if you weren't uh, watching at the time and you've only kind of looked back since then, since Andre was beaten and you know that he was and he's passed away and you haven't watched him wrestle that much, maybe you don't understand. Imagine the way having a match against Brock Lesnar is now times like a billion. Like you didn't beat Andre. I keep driving that point home, but like this is genuinely seemed to be the end of Hulk Hogan. Like that's... That's an intense idea, especially to your younger fans. And it's implausible to think of anybody seeming like that big of a threat these days. Like it's the equivalent of like the Undertaker's undefeated streak, except you knew eventually he would lose it. Whereas with Andre, there was a good chance he was just going to retire undefeated. Yeah, and sort of in the tradition of who really sold WrestleMania, I'm going to throw this one to Bobby Heenan. I just, I don't think this works the way it did without Heenan. I think you would have had more of the audience willing to cheer Andre if he hadn't aligned himself with Heenan because Heenan is just such a piece of shit. Like, just the worst, slimiest person in the world. Yeah, if you're ever asking who the greatest manager of all time was, I think it starts and stops with a guy who is synonymous with evil to such an extent that he could turn someone heel just by standing next to them. Like, that's all there is to it. Been a face for 20 years, stand next to Heenan, immediate heel. Heenan cuts great promos in the lead up to this, um, insists that they make Andre a giant new title belt that can fit around his waist. Uh, This is 
I think I'm sure somewhere in the warehouse now, and this will be a great prop if they ever, ever open a physical hall of fame, but yeah, they do another Piper's pit where they present Andre with the giant title belt that can fit around his waist that he'll win. If he wins this match, Man. um, they should have they, given that to Big Show when he won the title. <laughs> they also say that this will be, you know, Hogan will get a new title belt if he retains, but he doesn't until a year after this when they debut the you know, famous Eagle belt that's so iconic. He continues to wear the so-called Hogan 86 belt for another year after this. Yes, for all you belt marks out there. And there are way more belt marks out there than I ever realized that there were. <laughs> Yeah, um, I it would have been. This is they really should have given him a new title belt for the for this. I, there should be some. I mean, I've always felt like there should be some special commemoration when you win the WrestleMania main event. Like you should get a trophy or a medal or just something at something more. I agree, especially in, in moments like this where it's like a definitive passing of the torch situation. Like you're crowning a new era. Like it's important. For visually to communicate that. Yeah, I, I would have gotten a new belt for this. This would have been a perfect time to bring out the Eagle belt. I won't call it the Winged Eagle belt because that's a stupid name. All eagles have wings. <laughs> if they don't, you have a fucked up eagle. You need to go talk to a zookeeper about that. Yeah. Um, so this show, March 29th, 1987 in Pontiac, Michigan at the Pontiac Silverdome. Pontiac is 30 miles northwest of Detroit. This was the longtime home of the Detroit Lions from the 1970s into the early 2000s. Also the home of the Detroit Pistons from 1978 to 1988. Um, Silverdome hosted many big famous events, World Cup games, the Super Bowl, um, a massive um, mass with Pope John Paul, which... Uh, they had to make up this indoor attendance number to beat the Pope. Um, so it's Sunday. Bell time is 4 o'clock p.m., which is kind of random, um, especially given an issue that I'll get to in a second. They um, would have made more sense to start this show later. I don't know why they did 4 o'clock p.m., but um, attendance uh, reported. 93,173 at the time, a world indoor attendance record. Um, I think everybody agrees this number is bogus, but we can't really figure out what the real number is. I would guess somewhere in the 82 to 84,000 range. Yeah. Um, friend of the show and uh, Cuse Reviews contributor Michael C. has sat down and attempted on multiple occasions, he's put like weeks of his life into this. And to figure out what the actual attendance is, the closest number he's been able to get, I believe, was 82,000. So, and that's that's a pretty reasonable assessment. Yeah, so the Silverdome held between 78 and 80,000 for football. Um, there are no empty seats. Uh, we, you know, we pan the stadium multiple times during the show. There is not a single empty seat to be seen. So... Those 78,000 are filled, and then there's an unspecified number of people on the floor, but it's not 13,000 people on the floor. The floor right. is not packed. There's They could have put more people down there. I don't know if they didn't have the demand for it, or it was probably more an issue of kind of people. If they put more chairs further back, people wouldn't have been able to see the ring from where they were sitting. 
even if you included all of the ushers, all of the parking lot attendants, all the wrestlers, all the WWE personnel, even if you include everybody, there's no fucking way you can possibly get to 93,000. You'd have to like include the surrounding neighborhoods and like downtown Detroit. (laughs) Like you're not getting there. Yeah. Gate of $1.6 million. Um, Yeah. Massive, massive haul from that. Um, Cheapest tickets were ten dollars. I did. I don't know what the most expensive were. Like probably something that you know, today front row seats at WrestleMania run you a couple thousand, couple grand. I think um, nothing like that. Ticket prices have changed. Man, and it was just so great because when you pan, they pan the audience like many times, obviously because it's half the point of the show. The spectacle is how many people are actually here. You see like families everywhere. There's like thousands and thousands of children at this thing like that's not really what you see at wrestlemania anymore i don't know if that's just because the the age of the audience is kind of skewed older in recent times but it, it, that and also they've jacked the ticket prices so high that it's only the most diehard fans who are going yeah here it's literally families and families and families and that's that honestly that was really cool to see yeah detroit a big wrestling town going back for decades and decades um the longtime Detroit territory was big time wrestling owned by Ed Farhat, the original Sheik. Um, the other big star was Bobo Brazil. Um, this territory did big business for a long time until the Sheik's shitty booking and refusal to do jobs killed their business in the early 80s. And then I think Detroit kind of becomes disputed territory. Uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling would randomly run shows in Ohio and Michigan. I assume the AWA started to cut in, and Vince, I feel like Detroit was one of the first towns that the WWF kind of took over when they started touring outside the Northeast. Yeah, and this this whole area here is such WWF country. And I don't know how far it predates, because it was obviously AWA territory before that, but like this is a a huge WWF hotbed, like this whole area of the country. Yeah. And Detroit specifically was always a big Hogan town to the point where this was like when he was at his bottom in WCW as a face, everybody hated like Detroit was one of the few towns he would still get pops in. I mean, I'm not surprised when I tell you that there's lots of families there. What that means is that there are generations of people who will remember this show like this. This is a cultural memory, not just for the country in general, though that many people watched it. But for this area, this is one of the biggest things that's ever happened in this area of the country, ever. Yeah, um, huge business on pay-per-view, a buy rate between 8 and 10, approximating four to 500,000 buys, plus another 400,000 on closed circuit, over $10 million gross there a $15 million total gross for the event. Huge, huge business. Um, doubled the take from WrestleMania 2. That's, that's insane. Yeah. Gigantic business here. The th- $30 million gross is numbers. They'll go bigger at WrestleMania 5 because of the bigger pay-per-view availability. But after that, they won't be doing that kind of revenue again until the Attitude Era. That's wild. 
Um, on commentary, we've got Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura really kind of coming into their peak. At first, they're actually together on commentary, unlike last year. But I also feel like they've kind of evolved better into their roles now, where Jesse is more clearly the heel commentator and spending a lot of time messing with Gorilla. And also, Jesse has gotten successful outside of wrestling to the point where he doesn't need wrestling and he's just there to mess around with everybody. And that's when Jesse's at his best. Doesn't give a shit. Jesse Ventura is the best wrestling commentator that there has ever been because he will just deliberately go against what the show is trying to do just to point out stuff. And it's, it's lovely that he does that. It makes Hogan a bigger star to me that Jesse constantly is trying to chop him down left and right, no matter what he does. Like I love every word that comes out of his mouth on this show. Tagline for the show, bigger, better, badder. That's so 80s, and it's absolutely perfect. You can just, in your head, imagine that last word in italics. Like, that's how great yeah. it is. Um, so as the broadcast starts, we cut in to see Vince standing in the ring. This is the famous Welcome to WrestleMania 3 intro. Um, he Vince talks about this on the True Story of WrestleMania DVD. Um, he, he says as he's getting in the ring, all he, he feels the spirit of his father there with him. And on the DVD, he is literally moved to tears talking about this. I, I, I guess in his mind, this was his dad would finally be proud of him. He had finally proved himself by doing this. I mean, let's put this in context for a second, because five years before this, WWF was not like the hottest territory in the world. Like, the Iron Sheik had the title. They had just taken it off of Backlund, who was a horrific failure. I mean, they they had okay business, but Vince had just taken it over and was just starting to launch into his plan, which was either going to make or break the entire thing. And it all so easily could have slipped out of his fingers. And here we are five years later, only five years into his run, and he's packed 80,000 people into a stadium for the biggest match of all time. Like, yeah, what can you say? Yeah, I mean, so this is the, I mean, I'm trying to think of what the second biggest American uh, stadium gate, you know, wrestling gate would have been before this. Probably one of um, the world class Texas stadium shows. I think actually it was Pat O'Connor versus somebody in St. Louis. I, I remember looking this up one time. Um, I'd have to look up exactly what it was. I know Pat O'Connor was part of it, though, and it was from like the 50s. Where they okay, had drawn yeah, like the 50s when they were on broadcast TV. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so v Vince is doing this. They have broadcast TV now a few times a year with NBC. But yeah, Vince is doing this without that advantage of being, you know, one of two programs on broadcast TV on a nightly basis. Exactly. Um, Vince proceeds to introduce the Queen of Soul, Miss. Aretha Franklin. This is the this best is America the Beautiful of all time. They had when they did WrestleMania in Detroit again for 23, they absolutely had to bring her back, was how good this was. There was no question they were doing that again. And the legend behind how she got here is almost as good as the actual performance. Yes. So her car got stuck in traffic on the way to the stadium, which is not surprising at all, given how uh, many people were coming there and how kind of poorly equipped Pontiac, Michigan is to deal with crowds of this size. 
and uh, she didn't have time for a sound check. She just barely got there in time, and so she just sat down and fucking rocked it. I just want you to imagine, because if you listen to our WrestleMania 2 show, you'll know that that show was plagued with audio issues, was plagued with technical and production issues. If they screw this up because they don't have a sound check, can you imagine how much of like a fart in church that would have been? Like you get Aretha Franklin and you can't hear her singing. Yeah. Um, I will uh, say that the production on this show is drastically improved from the amazing, year before. Yes. I can't think of any problems they had off the top of my head. Whereas the year before it was almost every segment had something wrong here with a, I mean, so they don't have the challenge of the three cities, but here they've got the stadium and all the problems that can cause, but nothing just absolutely flawless. And you can tell that the company has pumped money into production since the last WrestleMania. And maybe it was Dick Ebersol's influence kind of nudging them towards a, a more like glitzy production-y like format. But it, it's very, very clear. This looks much bigger and better than it did before. And dare I say better. Yeah. So as far as the setup, you know, it's still the afternoon when the show starts. So it's very bright in the dome. It looks really cool. Um as the sun sets, it gets very dark in the dome. It becomes very, by the main event, it's almost pitch black outside of the ring, which I think really adds to the drama. Yeah. Uh, I always love that day to night effect that you get um, for either outdoor shows or in this case, a kind of translucent dome. But the reason I mentioned the start time was they have these four giant screens at the top of the arena for people to be able to watch the show on if they're far away. The problem was these screens weren't going to be visible for over an hour into the show unless it rained. When told about this, Vince's response was, that's okay, it'll rain. And it did. Man. He... <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, you imagine if it's sunny that day and people go to the stadium and everybody in the upper deck can't see the screens or the ring. Would not have gone over well. I mean, on one hand, that sucks. But on the other hand, we already got their money, brother. Yeah. <coughs> um, so this is the famous motorized carts taking people down the aisle. I absolutely love these. They would use them again for WrestleMania 6. I would love it if they did. A, I mean, like last year, that ramp down in Orlando was absurdly long, and they probably should have used carts for it. Like, I think Randy Orton's legs cramped up walking down it. It was so long. Literally, like, their entrances took so long that it added, like, a full half hour onto the show. I think somebody, like, tabulated it up. Like, over the course of the entire show, people's entrances added, like, a seriously 20 minutes to the entire program compared to what they normally would have been. That's freaking ridiculous. Can we just yeah. do some motorized carts, please? Yeah, they had to have Undertaker like pop out of a tunnel most of the way down the ramp because there's no way he was making it down that ramp in less than an hour. They just blown up before you even get to your name on the floor. I don't think Andre physically could have walked this far. I guess that that was my question. I think I brought that up before. Is did they do this just for Andre? And no, then, I think it was also to you know just cut that. Like we don't have time for long entrances. Like this is this is a different era where like most guys still don't have entrance music. Entrances are not big productions yet. They just want to get guys into the ring. Well, that's the problem with Andre is that he's not well. Obviously, he'll die if just a few years later from this. But like. You mentioned the Princess Bride. When he was on the set of that movie, he could not pick up like a young woman 
like to hold her up, like literally had to suspend her from wires because he literally had that little strength in his arms anymore. Like there was a very good chance he wasn't going to make this match. Yeah. Um, that was the fear. And I've heard the theory that the reason Paul Orndorff didn't have a match on the show was that he was kind of the standby main event. If Andre couldn't, if Andre, you know, if his back acted up and he couldn't get through it, they would have inserted Orndorff in the main event instead. You know, him and Hogan had had that hot feud. But then I heard an interview with Paul Orndorff where somebody asked him why he was, wasn't on the show. And he said he wasn't sure, but he had had some neck problems around this time. So I think he's actually just injured. I, I don't think they had a plan B. I think it was just like Andre's going to do the match. And really, they could have gone really short on that match if they needed to. And I think everything still would have been okay. It could have just been body slam leg drop if it had to be. Yeah. I mean, it's not a lot. It goes 12 minutes, but it's not a lot more than that. I'm actually surprised. Uh, anyway, we'll get to that match later on. Yeah. So our opening match, which is in the ring as Aretha finishes, um, uh, finishes America the Beautiful. We've got the Can-Am connection of Rick Martell and Tom Zink against the magnificent Don Morocco and Cowboy Bob Orton. Um, so the Can-Am connection, basically to sum up who they are, they're strike force, but with Zank instead of Santana. When Zank would abruptly leave the WWF a few months after this in a pay dispute, they just switched Tito Santana in and ended up giving Strike Force the tag belts and a huge push. And I think that's what they had in mind for the Can-Am connection, given the spot they're in here, getting the opening match on this show. Tom Zank again. <laughs> Has any podcast other than What Happens When ever given so much coverage to Tom Zane? No, and he really doesn't deserve it, but here we are anyway. This is probably the best that he ever was. The Can-Am connection is cool. Like, yeah, they're this good. is a good match. They look yeah. fantastic in there. Um, you know, T Tito and Martel would be a very good team too, but I think uh, Martel and Zink might have actually been better. Yeah, and the, like the look of them just really works together, like two young, good-looking guys. Morocco and Orton are so far past their prime that they can't even see it in the rearview mirror anymore. But this is good. Yeah. Um, Zank and Martel are just flying around the ring. They're doing all the 80s babyface spots, you know, flying cross bodies, double drop kicks, sunset flips, all that sort of stuff. I kind of felt like this was the era where they started transforming some of the old territory stars into like, like, basically like high profile enhancement guys to get the new generation over. Like, I feel like 87 is the year where that kind of kicks in where they're just like, all right, uh, Morocco and Orton, uh, it's time for you to put over some young guys because we're kind of done with you. It definitely feels like, it feels like we're seeing a shift from when you looked at WrestleMania one, it was a lot of kind of old guard territory guys. Now we are starting. It's kind of like rock and wrestling part two is starting here. Yeah, their WWF is actually building their own stars. Not that they like Tom Zink and Rick Martel hadn't gotten play, like pushed other places, but they're they're kind of fresh WWF faces. Whereas Morocco and Orton have been around forever at this point. Yeah, so this is a quick five minute match, which I think is the right choice. This was not an era of long opening matches. You're just looking for something exciting while people are finding their seats. Um, Can Am Connection. Um, win after a crossbody from Martel where Zank is uh, standing behind Orton and trips him and they get the pin. Uh, Bob Orton's final WrestleMania. 
Goodbye, and Bob. Is Bob Orton? It's sort of like, does he belong in like a WrestleMania Hall of Fame because of the role he played in WrestleMania One? And like, I like Cowboy Bob, but no, 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 he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, the WWE Hall of Fame is—he's in there, but it's not at all legitimate Hall of Fame. No, not at all. Um, then we get a video package for the Billy Jack Haynes versus Hercules feud, which is all about who has the better full Nelson. Nothing says 80s wrestling like a good full Nelson feud. And here's the thing. They both have really bad full Nelsons. Nowhere near the Chris Masters full Nelson. Let's say Chris Masters would blow these guys out of the water, despite the fact that they're both probably better workers than Chris Masters ever became. I'm sorry, Chris. You know I'm a big fan. <laughs> Uh, mean Gene interviews Bobby Heenan and Hercules. Hercules talks about how his chain and how thousands of years ago he used this chain to pull down the pillars of Rome. So they have transitioned Hercules from the previous year. It seemed like he had more of a Bruiser Brody type of thing going on to now he's a Greek god. Yeah, he said that he made Samson and Atlas bow down to him, which seems like kind of a random collection of dudes. To, like just like he just snatched like whoever he pull, yeah it seems like he's just pulling things from you know he's got the bible he's got greek mythology he's got ancient history just kind of putting things all together we talked before about how hey in this era they just let people talk about whatever and sometimes that works and you get roddy piper and sometimes you get hercules yeah hercules is around for a long time though despite uh, the fact like, do we agree that Hercules sucks? I've heard he was better. He he's he's a guy who's been around for a while at this point. I've heard he's one of those guys who had his best years before the national expansion. He, that he was much better in mid south. That makes sense. Um, yeah, but Billy Jack Haynes was a pretty big star in the Portland territory. Uh, this is kind of the only big match of his career. It's not really even that big. He has gone from the company later this year. I think after failing a drug test. I think failed a drug test and also refused to do a job in his hometown. And that was the end of him. Billy Jack Hayes is such like a blip in the history of WWF. But I want you guys to understand that there was a time when it was believed that he was a future star as big as Hulk Hogan. There were people who legitimately thought that he had that potential. The problem was is that he was an unbelievably volatile human being. I want you to do yourself a favor and as homework today, find the RF video shoot with Billy Jack Hayes. It is harrowing. His life is terrifying. He and New Jack may be the only wrestlers to have killed multiple people in cold blood. Ooh, yeah. Was uh, he also the guy who was responsible for the Rockers getting fired during their first run? Um, oh, crap. Was that Billy Jack Haynes? I think maybe it I was. Think he was the one who like got into it with them in the bar and got them to start smashing stuff. Crap, I can't remember if it was him or somebody else. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he didn't like him. Like, Billy Jack Hayes didn't like anybody. He's a miserable human being. Yeah, there's not a lot to this match. Big dudes punch each other. Uh Hercules uh, gets the full Nelson on, but as Gorilla points out, doesn't have the fingers locked, so he doesn't really have the full pressure on. I just loved how Gorilla, like, he mostly did it with the abdominal stretch, where he'd just be like, no, you gotta, you know, 
get your foot in behind their ankle to really cinch it in. I kind of like those little reminders that Gorilla actually used to be a wrestler because yeah. when I was a kid, I, I honestly had no idea he ever had been. Yeah, it was the same th- like it's the same thing with Bobby Heenan. I feel like with some of their commentators today, like if you if you listen to, I mean, like Byron Saxton was a wrestler, but nothing about his commentary would suggest that he was. Right, because he's trying to be Michael Cole. So it's yeah. like, yeah. Like even Graves, I don't think, plays up his experience in the ring very much because that's just not the kind of commentary Vince wants. Like that's that's what made Taz so good when Taz was actually good is all of his commentary came from that point of view. Like, oh, he locked in that hold. I used to lock in that hold all the time and he had to do it like this and it wrenched this and it worked on this. Like that's good commentary. It gets you, it makes you understand what's going on in the ring or at least gives a plausible reason for them to be doing a rest hold. <laughs> Yes, amazingly, there was actually a time where Taz was a good commentator. It didn't last long, and it was damn a, sure didn't make it. JBL was good, too. I, I've always liked JBL as a commentator, honestly. Like, I even when he was really good when he was first with Cole on SmackDown. I thought he was pretty abysmal, like his last couple years as the voice of Vince. But he would always have those moments because he could, like, twist like some wordplay in a way that they don't have any other commentators who can do. Yeah, so uh, Haynes makes his comeback. Crowd isn't really into it. Uh, Jesse comments on how many clotheslines they're throwing, which is his way of burying the match. <laughs> That's so great. I've lost count of all those clotheslines. Uh, which is pretty rich coming from Jesse Ventura also. <laughs> um Billy Jack applies the full Nelson. They both tumble to the floor. He puts it back on while they're on the floor, and they're both counted out because God knows he can't beat either of these guys. So we don't wind up finding at all out who has the better full Nelson. I mean, Billy Jack got out of Hercules' full Nelson, but Hercules didn't escape Billy Jack's full Nelson. That's a fair point. And Billy Jack doesn't escape being knocked out with the chain either. Yeah, Hercules knocks the fuck out of him, and Billy Jack is busted open. Did he do a blade job here? I think that he did, but it's That's if he, absurd. Like he did a blade job in a short ass match, but yeah. I mean, like this is dude. The, Bill Watts would have fined him like his year's salary for this. Yeah, and like I, I get trying to make it like a little bit more memorable, but. There's Dude, probably a second match on the card. No you're, blood. You're going into business for yourself here. And like yeah. Vince couldn't have been happy. Now uh, we go backstage where Gene mean interviews King Kong Bundy, who has fallen from the main event to a midget match. He will be partnering with Lord Littlebrook and little Tokyo against the team of hillbilly Jim, little beaver and the Haiti kid. Yeah. Poor Bundy. Yeah, yeah he this is. This is his last WrestleMania until they inexplicably bring him back to feud with The Undertaker in 1995. I cannot wait to talk about that when we eventually get to that WrestleMania because it's one of the random and stupidest things that they ever wound up doing. And but the here, had years of shit opponents in the mid 90s. Oh my God. Like, just no favor. Like, he and Sting had such parallel, parallel careers. <laughs> Where it's, it's just like it's amazing that a guy with his kind of status and stroke couldn't get some good people to work with. That he didn't just put his foot down and be like, 
no, like, give me Bam Bam Bigelow. I think nobody in the history of the business has ever had as much stroke as Taker and used it less. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, can you just hire a godfather? And uh, (laughs) that was all he really wanted. Yeah. Just give me the the Bone Street crew. And uh, yeah, I'm good. And uh, and I won't insist that you push any of them. No, no. They'll be be my boys, but they can all be jobbers. That's fine. Bury the shit out of them. Who cares? Um, so yeah, we've got our mixed tag match up next. Bob Euchre, Mr. Baseball, joins the commentary team. Euchre, a reliable and entertaining presence on these early WrestleManias. Clearly he's, a big fan. He's so good. And he's just one of those guys who can just pick up and run with literally anything. And like you don't get we we mentioned we've mentioned like the troubles that people have with commentary if they're not used to doing that particular brand of thing. Like even other wrestlers who you would think would be better at commentary just can't quite get it, even if they know what they're supposed to be talking about. Here, Bob Euchre doesn't really know what the fuck is going on. Doesn't matter. He hits the ground running. Yeah. Um, so the rules are it's supposed to be big guys against big guys and little guys against little guys, but immediately Jesse is teasing that he wants to see Bundy smash one of these guys. So you know what's happening. I mean, that's the appeal of the whole match, right? Like, that's yeah. that's the whole reason to do this. Yeah. Beaver and Kid are taunting Bundy the whole time. He's trying to catch him. Finally, he gets to hold a little Beaver after a few minutes and slams the fuck out of him and then drops an elbow on him. So that's a disqualification. Um, I mean, a silly match, but I thought it was fun for the couple minutes it lasted. I do want to point out there are three moments on this show that get enormous next level liquid heat pops. <laughs> the first one is Roddy Piper's entrance. Yeah. One is when Hogan slams Andre. And the third is when Lil Beaver squares up with King Kong Bundy and challenges him to come on. Yeah. That is special. Dude, poor Bundy. I mean, I know he's not going to be in the main event again, but like, this is a big fall. Yeah. Like, this, I, I is, this is like the Miz going from the WrestleMania 27 main event to the Team Teddy versus Team Johnny match the year after. Yeah. And what's funny is, like, I know Bundy was not exactly, like, in good graces, but you can so easily see him as being, like, if, like, let's say that Arnold is on this show, you can use Bundy for that easily. But they're using him here for this? Yeah. And after this, it feels like they pretty much replace him with one man gang. Do you think that's an improvement? I like one man gang until they turned him into Akeem. Yeah. I, I know some people have positive memories about Akeem, but uh, I'm not one of those. <laughs> uh, next up, we've got celebrity Mary Hart from Entertainment Tonight interviewing Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth. Uh, she keeps trying to ask Elizabeth questions, but Savage won't let Elizabeth talk. Uh, then Does get... Elizabeth say anything on WWE television until, ooh, yeah, to the marriage proposal? Not that I recall. Like, um, that's pretty cool that they... Silent and pretty was her gimmick. I mean, it's not cool that silent and pretty was her gimmick, but that that's how they blow off her silence angle is with ooh, yeah. Next... Uh, we get a quick interview. We get interviews with Harley Race and Bobby Heenan and then the Junkyard Dog. They're fighting next in a loser-must-bow match. Um, JYD says, you know, America ain't never had no king, ain't never had no queen, 
And my mom and dad, uh, my mom and dad taught me never to bow to nobody except the Lord above. God, what a baby face. He really is. Uh, this will be, J uh, no, he's in the Battle Royal the year after this. Um, so Harley Race, NWA champion, but of course nobody knows anything about that shit. So we've got to make him the king of wrestling to make him legitimate. Now, I know Flair is so, like, I mentioned that Morocco and Orton were past their prime. Like, Harley Race, like, he, he, was, he was old. He was ending his prime when he put over Ric Flair for the first time. <laughs> Four years before this. Like, this is, he's old as shit, but he's bumping like a madman in this match. He can still go. He had a good match with Hogan on Saturday night's main event around this time. Absolutely. Like that's, that's the one where he did the um, diving headbutt through the table and jacked up his neck. Yeah, that like he's doing some ballsy spots. Like he's like some stuff you didn't really see at the time. Yeah, um, this is a quick three-minute match, but you know a pretty good one, especially considering kind of it's JYD against a guy who's a thousand years old. Um, Race takes some big bumps. JYD slams Harley from the apron into the ring. Uh, Race takes the flare bump down to the floor. Uh, JYD gets distracted by Heenan. Race hits him with the belly-to-belly -belly suplex and gets the pin in less than three minutes. Um, JYD is supposed to bow, but he blasts Harley with the chair instead. Jesse is apoplectic, says that's the worst cheap shot he's ever seen. And Gorilla, of course, defends it because Gorilla's a sleazy, slimy hypocrite. Yeah, goddamn Gorilla always teaming up with all these hypocrites and horrible people. On a side note, if JYD had been not even 10 years younger, but like five years younger, how big of a star could he have been? Oh, so, I mean, like, he, th this guy drew massive money in Mid-South. They were doing 25,000, 30,000 people in the Superdome. You put him on national TV, um, yeah, sky's the limit. He, I mean, he's way past his prime, and he was still the number two babyface for a couple years here. Right. I mean, like... There's an alternate universe where JYD is Hogan. Like, that's, it's possible. Honestly, he had that level of charisma. We go back to interview the man himself. Vince interviews Hogan, who cuts just an insane <laughs> and nonsensical promo. Uh, what were some of the gems here? Well, man, I rolled out of the gym going through the intersection, heading up to the mountains, and the brothers told me this was going to be my last ride. There's an like, odd, like Hogan's got an odd death drive in his 80s promos. Like there's just this constant, just this constant death hanging over them. I just love that you can tell in all Hulk Hogan promos from this era that zero preparation takes place. No. Hulk Hogan walks in front of a camera, opens his <laughs> and mouth, and just goes. stuff pours out. What intersection is he talking about? What mountains did he drive past in Detroit? I have no idea. My favorite part of this promo is when Hogan's saying, like, I only have to beat a seven foot four, five hundred and fifty pound giant, but Andre has to defeat every single Hulkamaniac. Every single one. Like in a row? At one point he said he's like, Well, they say if the smog don't get you, then the politicians will. <laughs> what Again, the fuck does that what mean? What is he talking about? <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, it's and Vince is just nonplussed. He's just standing yeah. there. Well, it's a great promo because it's not about what you say. It's about how you say it. Like, this is some ultimate warrior shit right here. Where, like, it's mad, but, like, the energy comes through. 
Yeah, no, he's just radiating intensity, and I guess you sort of you sort of feel like he's so jacked up for this huge fight that that's why he's not making any fucking sense. Yeah, like he's literally like on a like a, a suicide mission run, and he's just gonna give it his all, brother. Like he's got it all coming. Like it's it's actually kind of cool, honestly. You never really see stuff like this anymore. Like nobody commits like this. No. I and I don't know if it would work today because I think we're just in a more cynical era where people would laugh at it. Yeah, and that kind of sucks sometimes, you know. Like being in a cynical era where everybody knows better and everything, and everyone would be beating it up on Twitter twelve seconds after the fact. But man, you just don't get emotion like this these days. Cena might be able to pull this off. I would love nothing more than to see John Cena come out on television and be like, God damn it, Elias. You know, when I go to the Doctor of Thugonomics Academy, dude, in the intersection, like, oh my God. <laughs> oh. Um, so our next match, we've got the Rougeau brothers against the Dream Team. Raymond Rougeau, as Gorilla insists on pronouncing it. Uh, Dream Team are... Brudai and Greg Valentine. Ugh. Again, nobody's dream. And they've got luscious Johnny Valiant and Dino Bravo making his WrestleMania debut in their corner. I think um, Dino Bravo is one of my least favorite wrestlers ever. He contributes nothing. Oh. And this match is completely about Dino Bravo. Like, yeah. nobody else even matters. Yeah, it's... The Dream Team have gone from being the tag champions last year to this shit match, which is, frankly, a better use of them. Again, it shows the talent level in this federation has gone up since last year. I will say that it's just so funny to me that the Rougeau brothers are the baby faces here because oh they are horrifically unlikable baby faces. The thing is, they're kind of the original like New Day in the sense that their face shtick was so terrible that they just became heels and continued to do the same thing because as, as heels, they were just kind of like overly earnest fakers and that's what they were here. Nobody bought this. Yeah. Which is kind of great that they went that way, but ugh, this match sucks. Like <laughs> everybody in it is kind of crappy or doesn't care. Like nobody's gimmick is fitting them well. And then the finish just made me angry. So beefcake accidentally hits Valentine with an axe handle. That leads to the Rougeau bomb. The referee gets distracted by something that allows Dino Bravo to fucking lumber into the ring, hit an elbow drop, get out of the ring just in time for the referee to turn around and see Valentine get in the pen. Uh. The only good part about this was Bobby Heenan got on the commentary team. Uh, his first appearance as a commentator on WrestleMania, and he is awesome. Uh, yeah. He brags about being two for two, claiming the double countout with Billy Jack Haynes is a win. And Gorilla points out, actually, you're one for three because Haynes didn't win. And sure, Harley Race did, but your man Bundy also lost. And Bobby says that doesn't count because he wasn't out there with Bundy for that match <laughs> because <laughs> he didn't care about that. He didn't care enough to show up to the ring for that. Oh my god. Like you can already see the chemistry yes. that Gorilla and Bobby are gonna have. Like it's immediate and perfect. Yeah. I'm normally against three man booths, but I would have liked to hear Gorilla, Bobby, and Jesse together. 
My favorite thing was that Jesse was just kind of like, yeah, I agree with Bobby. Go, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so for some reason after this, Valentine and Bravo decide to ditch Beefcake, which is the end of this team, and this is Brutus Be- Beefcake's babyface turn. Um, Bravo and Valentine form the new Dream Team, which is somehow even worse than the original Dream Team. Okay, we need to talk about something right now. And that's that WrestleMania 3, one of the biggest wrestling events in the history of professional wrestling. Obviously, the A storyline is Hogan Andre. But the B storyline, the through line throughout the yes. entire show, is the babyface turn of Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. Yeah, and this is where he actually becomes the barber. He's not the barber before this. Like, please understand that, like... Based on what we see on this show, they think he's the next big baby face. I, yeah. Why? I mean, it's a real strong play. I mean, he does a number two face after this. It's kind of between him and Duggan for a while. Yeah. and But, like, it's weird that they chose him, but they literally turn him baby face in this match. And then we'll see him again later on in this show. And he's probably number two baby face by the end of this show. Yeah. So next up, we've got the hair versus hair Roddy Piper retirement match. It's Piper against Adrian Adonis. Um, this story begins when Piper goes on a hiatus after WrestleMania two. Uh, in his absence, Adrian Adonis replaces Piper's pit with the flower shop. Um, Piper returns in August, and he's not pleased with the changes that Adonis has made to the place in his absence. And this brings them into conflict. Um, Piper gets tuned up by Adonis and Bob Orton, who had become his bodyguard. They uh, beat the shit out of him, smash a flower plant on his knee. Uh, later, Piper comes back with a baseball bat and smashes the flower shop. Um, for what seems like a silly storyline, they actually put some intensity into this. Yeah, and... On top of that intensity, like kind of building towards it, is the fact that this is openly Roddy Piper's retirement match. Yeah. Like it, it was public, everybody knew it was just mainstream knowledge that this was going to be it for him. Yeah, he announced on TV in the run up this was going to be his last fight, you know, really emotional during it. Um, talked about how wrestling kept him out of jail, changed his life. And for he had only turned face in August when he came back. The crowd absolutely loves him by this point. The pop that Roddy Piper's music gets is otherworldly. There are maybe only like a hand, like a dozen bigger pops that I've ever heard in wrestling history. It's huge. Is this bigger than Hogan's? I think it is. I think yeah. it absolutely is. Um, so, I mean, we know this is kind of a joke that Piper's announcing his retirement in 1987, but this is the last time he ever, I mean, his last year as a full-time wrestler was 1985 because he was gone for a lot of 86 making movies. He goes away after this. And when he comes back after this, he's never really there full-time. <laughs> Man. And I mean, he's going to go on to make some pretty good movies, though. I think we were all pretty glad to see him when he actually came back. And he'll go on to put over Bret Hart as like the only time any old school guy puts over any young school guy. Yeah. So the rules here, it's just a standard match. And then the loser gets their hair cut by the winner. Adonis has hedge clippers with him, uh, which will be 
stolen by Brutus Beefcake to form his new gimmick in a few minutes. Um, Adonis has his manager Jimmy Hart backing him up, and this is just a fight from go. Um, Piper gets his belt off and he's whipping Adonis with it. For some reason, whipping somebody with a belt is legal in wrestling. I've never seen anybody get DQ'd for that. Even if it's like a big ass weight belt, it doesn't make yeah. any difference. Like Hogan like, oh. wins his weight belt, and somehow that would just be legal. He used it in every fucking match. Yeah. Um, Piper gets distracted by going after Jimmy Hart, and Adonis takes over. Adonis has somehow gotten even fatter from last year, but is still bumping like an absolute maniac. And let the record uh, show that this is a really good match. Yeah, like this it's, is, it's like it's like that Hogan Mountie match. Yeah, you know, just five minutes, but great fighting, brawling, crowd is absolutely rabid. This is what Pipe, Piper as a babyface had so much more potential than we actually got to get because he spent most of that time not in the company, obviously. But babyface Piper had this great way of just doing babyface fire and never stopping with it. Like he would just go for five minutes, and there was no there was no heat. There was no like normal match construction. It was just babyface fire Piper for five straight minutes and then the finish. And it and worked. This is something I've got no problem with an action-packed five-minute match. Yeah. Like I don't need 20 minutes if you don't have guy like I think the biggest mistakes in wrestling are usually when you try to make guys go a lot longer than they have the capability to. Like, no, Piper can't have a good 20-minute match. And, like, his matches with Hogan and WCW were terrible because they were trying to go 15, 20 minutes. Like, when Goldberg and Brock had that match at WrestleMania last year, they were just like, okay, we're going to go balls out for five minutes. Nobody had a problem with that. No, it's Nobody would have wanted to see that match go longer. And it really it builds to Goldberg that like his matches win or lose he's going yeah somebody's yeah. getting knocked out exactly the Mike Tyson angle and with Piper it added to his unpredictability feel like he's coming in and he's coming straight at you you got no time to prepare there's no rest holds we're going yeah J- Jimmy Hart tries to get in the ring Piper throws him off the top rope onto Adonis but then as Piper is hitting the ropes Hart trips him this allows Adonis to take over. But it's brief. Piper fires up. He gets perfume squirted in his eyes. Adonis hooks Goodnight Irene, his sleeper hold finisher. He thinks Piper's out after his arm drops twice, but two ain't enough, man. You need three. Um, Brutus Beefcake shows up and revives Piper. Hello, Brutus. Like... Now, he just turned face in the previous segment. There had been a a lead up to this. Um, On on TV before this, they had done an angle where Adonis cut Beefcake's hair, like pretending he thought it was Piper, but he actually knew it was. It was kind of a dumb thing, but like this is Beefcake getting revenge for something Adonis did to him in the lead up to this. But let the record show that he had still been a heel pretty significantly previous to this and he runs in and he revives piper and i hope you can hear the air quotes right now but basically he punches piper in the face (laughs) like that's his way of reviving him and i was instantly like wait wait what is he still a heel what's happening yeah piper sits up gets adonis in the sleeper hold puts him out piper wins loved it everything it should have been Oh, yeah, it was perfect. I, I loved every second of it. Like, this is awesome. Adrian Adonis doesn't get nearly enough credit. Yeah. Um, they 
Beefcake starts cutting Adonis's hair. He's got the clippers. He's really trying to get all the hair off. And he can't do it. At a certain point, you can kind of see Adonis be like, dude, cut it out. Like, you're going to rip my hair. You're going to rip the skin off my skull if you keep doing that. So infrequently have in-ring head shavings ever gone well. Like, they just make me cringe every time. It's a hard thing to do to shave, shave somebody's head, it turns out. It takes a lot of time. Yeah, it's almost um, like we pay people to do that. Austin, Austin Lashley did a pretty good job with it at WrestleMania 23, but Austin, you know, had the experience of shaving his own head. Yeah. And Lashley also. <laughs> yeah. Um. Intermission is edited out here. We come back and it's gotten noticeably darker in the dome. And Jesse Ventura is in the ring for some reason. They just they introduce Jesse Ventura to the crowd and he gets a big pop. That just becomes like a thing. Yeah, where they just the next, introduce they Jesse. The next couple WrestleManias and I love it. Yeah, it's just like Jesse's like, hey, uh, I'll, I'll be I'm happy to work here and everything. But uh, you're going to need to introduce me so everyone knows that I'm here because I'm important. Yeah. Um. So also he kidnaps a dog. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He stays at ringside for this match. It's the Hart Foundation and Danny Davis against Tito Santana and the British Bulldogs. How nice is it to see the Hart Foundation in a proper match at WrestleMania instead of a battle Royal? Thank God. And they're in the pink. Ah, thank God. Yeah. The real Hart Foundation are here. They are the WWF tag team champions they stole the titles from the British Bulldogs due to the crooked officiating of Danny Davis. This Danny Davis heel referee gimmick was so brilliant, and I can't believe they haven't done it. Really, like they 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 did the you know the two Hebner things a year after this, but like I think this heel referee gimmick is genius. I mean, they started to do it with Brad Maddox there for a minute when he screwed Ryback, and I thought that like oh my god that has legs. To yeah. be like the authority's official referee, and then they just dropped it. Yeah, like they dropped Brad Maddox. Yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously we all kind of wish this was the Hart Foundation against the British Bulldogs straight up, but Dynamite's back was really messed up, and he wasn't up to doing. They weren't up to doing two-on-two, so they add in Davis and Santana here. Now it fits the story because Davis had also cost Tito Santana the Intercontinental title um, in at the beginning of 1986 uh, against Randy Savage. So we've got a long-term story being built here. Uh, Danny Davis has just an insane amount of heat. Like he tags in and does a stomp and has the entire crowd booing him. I mean, it's to the point where it's just genius. Like there's like nobody else really mad. I wish that they had had kind of better babyface on the other side, maybe like a like a singles babyface star. I don't really know who that would have been. Like the Bulldogs and Tito Santana are okay foils for him, but this is nuclear level heat. Like they could have put him in with somebody huge and gotten a better reaction. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the heels get cleared out of the ring. This allows Jesse to grab Matilda the bulldog's bulldog and he runs off with her he steals the dog yeah who the hell steals a dog what a terrible thing to do that's not how he would say it on commentary um dynamite ends up taking the heat here which is insane considering like when you make this a six-man tag you would assume it would be so he can just kind of stand on the apron and not tag in but instead he ends up working most of the match i mean Tito Santana is right there. 
Like, taking the heat is what he does. We get a hot tag to Tito. He goes for the figure four on Davis, but Nightheart breaks it up. Tito tags in Davy Boy. Tito, or Davy Boy, hits a really nasty tombstone on Davis, like drops him right on his head. Then a big vertical suplex. He hits the running power slam, but Nightheart breaks up the pin. Then um, Jimmy Hart's megaphone gets thrown in, shot with the megaphone behind the referee's back. Referee doesn't see it. Neither does Gorilla somehow, and the Hart Foundation get the pin. My favorite 80s wrestling trope, Gorilla didn't see it. Because Gorilla never sees shit. Gorilla doesn't see shit. He really needs some thicker glasses. I almost think that he literally can't see anything that's going on in the ring, and he just waits for the color guy to like complain about something so he can be like, no, it was clearly correct. Um, so kind of an interesting decision to have the heels go over, but I guess with Dynamite being out for a while, it makes sense to put the hard foundation over. And especially with like heat this good, you're going to try to preserve it. It's just kind of a shame. Like It didn't really go anywhere. Like it, They didn't get a great match out of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, the, the Bulldogs aren't around for that much longer. They end up um, washing out of the company, not that... Um, you know, they're at WrestleMania four. Dynamite's out for a while, and then they have their problem with the Rougeau brothers, and that ends up being kind of the end of their run uh, towards the end of 88. And Bulldog doesn't come back until 91, and Dynamite Kid is never welcomed back, ever. And, yeah, and Bulldog will be right back out again in, what, like, 93? <laughs> Yeah, 92, and then back again, and out again, and another of those. Yep. Uh, we go backstage, Mean Gene interviews Heenan and Andre. Heenan promises Hulkamania dies tonight. Sadly, he does not say that Andre Mania will be running wild. Andre Mania? Bundy Mania didn't quite work out. Yeah, there's a reason why later on in his career... Hulk Hogan would like carry giant banners around that said like Hulkamania will live forever. It's not just because he was getting super old. It was also because every single feud Hulk Hogan has ever had involved a heel saying, I'm going to kill Hulkamania. Next up, we've got Butch Reed against the Birdman, Coco Beware. Um, uh... <laughs> Butch Reed. What are, what are your thoughts on Butch Reed? Butch Reed got kind of a, a bad shake. You know what I mean? Like Butch Reed is an intensely talented worker. Like he did great work. I think he was in Mid South, right? Was that where he was? Yeah. Yeah. Like he was doing amazing work down there. I've seen a lot of his matches that were really fantastic. The problem is, is that just when it was time for somebody, for just at the time in his career, he was just enough past his prime that he just didn't really have it. And they know they never really go with him here. They don't really go with him in WCW. He's just kind of there for a, like a full 10-year period of time. Yeah, big guy, nice body, pretty good worker, just never really finds his spot. Yeah. It's one of those times where like this, it's kind of like the Attitude Era, where like they wind up being so stacked full of talent that it's impossible for anybody to break through the glass ceiling. Like especially if you're a mid-card heel in WWF at this point, you're not even going to sniff the top. There are like hundreds of mid-card heels. I've also heard he was going to get the Intercontinental title from Ricky Steamboat, but he had travel issues and couldn't make it to the show, so they went with Honky Tonk Man instead. It feels like Butch Reed's career in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, one of those. Um, 
Butch is managed by Slick. This is clearly, you know, Coco was always a jobber to the stars. This is clearly designed to put over Butch. Jesse immediately compares Coco to Buckwheat. Um, didn't take him long. Oh, Jesse. Coco scores with a drop kick and a crossbody, but Butch rolls through to grab the tights and win in less than four minutes. Um, nothing much to that match. Uh, Slick takes some liberties with his cane after the match, but Tito shows up and rips Slick's clothes off. Another great 80s wrestling trope is the manager getting their clothes ripped off. Which is a shame because the managers had to have been spending tons of money on these clothes. Like Jimmy Hart <laughs> well, and as, as, um, D- D- Jesse points out that uh, Slick is looking good. He's ready to roll out to downtown Detroit right after this. And Gorilla responds, he doesn't have $39 worth of clothes on, including his hat. <laughs> God damn it, Gorilla. Gorilla knew fashion, too. Gorilla was, was a sharp, sharp dresser. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we get a Ricky Steamboat, Randy Savage video package, and it's time for the Intercontinental Championship match. Randy Savage defends against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, one of the most honored and famous matches of all time. Um, There was just the the mystique around this match, and it's a little different now because when I got into wrestling, like when you'd see discussions on forums like, what's the greatest match ever, this match would always come up. And there was no way to see it back then. Like, I didn't see this match until probably 2007 when YouTube came around. I didn't see it until they put out the anthology DVDs of all the WrestleManias that had, like, 20 fucking DVDs in it. Like, I didn't see it until then. Here's the thing. This is also one of the more misunderstood matches of all time, I feel like. This was supposed to be a blood feud. Yeah. Like... Ricky Steamboat almost like he got paralyzed in the throat by Randy Savage. Like he, his throat was smashed with a ring bell. He was out of action for months. This is his return. This is his payback. And then what we get is an amazingly well contested NWA style pin attempt fest. Yeah, an athletic contest. And I think it's a great match. And yeah. I always kind of question this as a story. Is it okay that Steamboat, I think because Savage has a title and he loves this title, it's what he cares about most, that it's okay for Steamboat to be focused on beating Savage rather than hurting him because he knows that taking that title from him will cause him more pain than anything else could. I mean, I can definitely understand that. And I I can also think there should be more Steamboat beating the shit out of Savage. Like, there's not even a little bit of that. And that's part of the problem, is that most people who watch the match now watch it in a vacuum. So they're just watching the match out of context as a match. And as a match divorced from a storyline, this may be the greatest match in the history of wrestling. Just as, like, a sit-down, watch-it-no-context match, it's beautiful. It's It's a work of art. I think I like Steamboat and Flair's matches more. Yeah, but this is, especially for WWF, this is, oh to God. this point, that's, easily the that's, best ever. That's the key to, like, getting this match, is if you watch this match just, you know, kind of out of nowhere, it won't stand out as much as if you watch hours and hours of 1980s WWF wrestling beforehand. WWF because you have to wrestling just how different this is. WWF wrestling sucked. 
really there sucks. hasn't even been a decent match on WrestleMania in either of the first two or yeah. on the show to this point. Like if we're going with star ratings, yeah, there has not been a three star match before this. And this is like a legit five star. Yeah. So it must have blown people's minds. There are people who were introduced to the concept of a good match by this match. <laughs> they didn't know that the light came on and suddenly they could see. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely the case. Like there were, and you hear people talk about it to this day for that very reason. Like you, you would see like the network specials and stuff where people would be like, this is the match that I was like, Oh my God, I got to yeah. be a pro wrestler. I think this, is incredible. This, cha this changed wrestling. Like you can imagine, you know, the Chris Jericho's Chris Benoit's of the world watching this match, AJ Styles and being like, I can do that. Like, that's what I can do. And even Much like, if you're yeah. Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels watching this, aren't you thinking to yourself, like, this This is my chance. Like, this is the style of the future. Yeah. Much like Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon would later do with the ladder match, it was a double-sided blade. Like, it, it's on one hand, it's inspiring people with this new and innovative way to kind of approach wrestling and apply it to yourself and be the kind of way that you want to be. On the other hand, you get a whole generation of people who think that this is what a good match is. Irregardless of the characters involved, storylines involved, a good match equals chain wrestling, pin attempts, high spots. End of story. And it's like, all right, but there's more. And I, I do think that that has plagued independent wrestling and young wrestlers for basically all the years since then. Wrestling changed with these matches. That's and, so if you were the agent for this match and you were helping them lay it out, would you have been like, no, like more punch in, more punch in, fewer roll ups? The problem is Steamboat didn't have a good punch. That's not what he did. Yeah. Well, he could throw karate chops instead. Yeah. And I think that that's. Like when we talk about what limited Steamboat from becoming like a next level star, I think you can see it here. Like he doesn't have the that ability edge, to do kind of baby, baby face, face fire. fire. Yeah. yeah. That's not what he does. Like one of the great technicians. I mean, just like we've said, nobody's smoother than Ricky Steamboat. Nobody can do an arm drag like Ricky Steamboat can. Absolutely. I think ultimately he was so good at being like a mid card intercontinental level baby face. That he just he rose above that level many times just because of how good he was at it, but that's all he was because he couldn't he just didn't have that side to him that like charismatic fire and you have to have that to rise higher than this. Yeah, I mean he has a brief run with the NWA title in '89, and I can't wait till we cover some of those Flair Steamboat matches because the matches are phenomenal, but the storyline sucks in my opinion. Yeah. Um, Kind of similar to this, actually, in that like they were trying to cast Steamboat as like, oh, he's the common man. And it's like, okay, Ricky Steamboat is like a martial arts technician built like a Greek god. No, he's not the common man. Exactly. Like, what do you like? <laughs> they're bringing they're bringing out his wife in a dress that costs as much as the rent most of the fans are paying for the month. Like, yeah. Um, it's one of those all time, like, I, I guess I get why they wanted to do this because they're just trying to recreate like Flair and Dusty, but Ricky Steamboat isn't Dusty Rhodes. He's, he's different. He's awesome too, but he's totally different. Yeah. And like, I'm sure they were just fine trying to figure out some way to get the kind of unique charisma that he did have to like connect with the fans a little bit, but it just, look, I know it sounds like I'm shitting on this match. I hope that you guys don't take that away. This is a work of art. This is beautiful. To this day, I can sit and watch this match three times in a row. It is 
gorgeous. The use of George Animal Steel on the side yeah. to like and I love that this is a year-long storyline with Steel that's coming back here that he's been involved with Savage for all this time now. And Steel kind of uses Steamboat to get his revenge on Savage because Steel could just never and quite beat him. He'll never beat Randy Savage. He just he knows he can't ever do it. But you know, Ricky Steamboat in his prime, this amazing athlete can. Absolutely. And like that really comes through in a great way. And there's a lot, there's just a lot here to love. Absolutely, unequivocally love. So please don't take away from this that I hate this match. Oh my God, this is such a great match. Yeah. It's just not what people th thought it was for a very long time. Savage and Elizabeth are out first. Then Steamboat comes out. His music sounded dubbed to me on the network. I think he may have still been using his uh, Malin Parsons project theme at this point. I think so, yeah. Which is an awesome, awesome wrestling entrance theme. Yep. Um, crowd's buzzing. It's a hot feud, and they know they're getting a great match here. Uh, Savage misses a charge, and he hits the buckle hard. Steamboat works the arm, but then Savage catches him with an elbow, throws him over the top rope to the floor. Savage with a knee drop across the floor throat, but Steamboat takes over. Uh, Savage gets caught in the rope, and Steamboat beats on him. Um, pace just never slows down. It's fantastic. Steamboat keeps taking Savage down and getting two counts. Uh, Savage tries to throw Steamboat out, but he skins the cat, but then gets clotheslined over the top. Savage follows him to the floor, knocks Steamboat over the rail and into the crowd. Um, he would be counted out, but Steel carries him into the ring. Jesse loses his shit over this. And I mean, much like all the best Jesse stuff, for good he's reason, man. Yeah, yeah, he's got a goddamn point. That's fucked up. Uh, back in the ring, Savage hits another axe handle. Uh, we get a the great clothesline move. Where I always love when he does this. Savage grabs the guy, runs, jumps over the top rope, and hot shots their throat across the top rope. That's such like a waste of energy, and yet it's so awesome at the same it's time. So cool. It's like when Savage would jump over the top rope and like slap the ring apron as he was coming down. Yeah, just showing off how athletic he is. God, and these guys just watching this match is kind of a, a repudiation of the idea that wrestlers aren't athletes because this is one of the most athletic matches you'll ever see. Just these guys, imagine the level of fitness required here. The cardio and the strength. Yeah, this match doesn't slow down. There's a hold or two. But what I love is even when somebody gets a hold, like the other guy's trying to fight out of it. They're struggling even while they're on the mat. It's not just, I'm going to put you in a headlock and sit on it for a couple minutes so we can get our wind. And there are other matches in this style now, obviously influenced by this match and the kind of style that it created. But I need you to understand the difference because a lot of the matches that are kind of more choreographed today between like people doing like quick transitions and chain wrestling and stuff, they pre-plan that out step for step in the back or they rehearse it. And like there's an actual plan to it in advance. Well, I mean, Savage always planned his matches out move for move. Yeah. And there's a reason yeah. for that. Um, like, you can't do this otherwise. No, because you have to slow down and figure out what you were going to do next. But yeah, I remember hearing it was like Regal and Austin. Somehow this came up. I think they were just talking about like best matches ever. And they mentioned this one. And then Regal's like, yeah, but then I talked to Steamboat about it. And I just couldn't look at it the same way again. And I'm like, 
shit, did somebody die with this match getting made? And it's like, no, he means it's because they plan the match out hold for hold. And, you know, he doesn't think that's real wrestling when you do it that way. And that's another way that this match influenced everybody, like we said, is that that was what Savage did. And that's why Savage's matches were noticeably better than everyone else's from the time period. But that was Savage doing it. Not everybody who does it gets as much soul out of his matches as he does. Yeah. Um, Savage with a vertical suplex. Steamboat kicks out, but the kickouts are noticeably weaker than they were. A gourd buster by Savage gets two. Uh, Steamboat flips out of a back suplex. Savage charges him and Steamboat backdrops him over the top rope. Jesse yells that that should be a disqualification, but this is not the NWA. I do love Jesse mentioning that, though. Like, he just forgot the WWF's actual rules. See, it's actually a logical rule, though, because if you could just throw people over the top rope onto the floor, like, you would do that all the time, and people would get injured constantly in these matches. Yeah, why would you do anything else? Like, if you're Andre or, like, the big show, <laughs> yeah, why are you not just... guy up and toss him. Yeah, you don't need a table. Just plant his ass into the concrete. Uh, Steamboat comes off the top rope with the big chop, gets two, but Savage gets his foot on the rope. Sunset flip by Steamboat for two. Roll up for two. Jackknife pin. Small package. So many two counts. This is every match today is one, two, no. Nobody did this back then. Yeah. This is like even a greater extension of like the NWA style where like they did stuff like this. But even they weren't necessarily doing this on this yeah. to this degree at the time. This is the first and time somebody just took it to the logical extreme. Well, two counts are good, so let's do 17 of them. And here's the thing. The fans, who have also never really seen this style before, pop for every single yes. near fall. Well, they, yeah, they buy that they, every single one of these combinations could be the pin. Because guys won more ma- like guys won matches a lot more frequently with roll-ups back then. Like Steamboat... Steamboat's finisher, I guess, was the flying crossbody, but he won a bunch of his matches with just roll-ups and bridge pins and that sort of thing. So it's right. plausible they, that he's going to win any of these. And they badly, badly want Steamboat to win this match. So every time Steamboat's about to get it, they're like popping huge and then aw. And every time Savage rolls them up, like they're losing their shit. Like, no! Yeah. It's great. Steamboat with the Oklahoma roll, but Savage rolls through it. Steamboat gets out at two. Savage throws Steamboat into the referee, and the referee is down. Savage hits the flying elbow. He's got Steamboat pinned, but no referee to make the count. There's your out for Savage. You know They protect his credibility, even though he's going to do the job here. And I'm glad they do do that, because obviously by this time next year, he's going to be the guy. So, I mean, they got to get him out of the Intercontinental title scene somehow, but they got to move him onto the world title. This is a great way to do it. Yeah. Um, he goes to get the ring bell, goes to the top rope, but Steel pushes him off. Um, Savage goes for a slam, but Steamboat rolls through into the small package for the one, two, three. Incredible match. You know, they get a huge pop from the crowd. Steamboat is crowned as the Intercontinental champion. This match only lasts 14 minutes. Yeah, that's what's crazy. Is I would have loved to see these guys go over 20. They could have gone an hour. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Never would have N- gotten tired of watching this. Yeah, In the NWA, this match would have gone an hour, and that probably would have been the problem with it. But they do so much in 14 minutes that, like, 
you got to watch it multiple times just to appreciate everything that you're seeing. Yeah, I would have gladly sacrificed several of the matches on this card to get this 25 minutes. Absolutely. Absolutely, without question. But it, it what happens is perfect. Randy blows off all of his mid-card feuds in one go, is now free to move on to the main event level and turn babyface and all of that good stuff. Steamboat is firmly entrenched as the work rate champion that they can put on the B-level house shows and send out to place where they're sure to have a happy ending to their mat to their show. It's perfect. It's exactly what Vince wants. Feels like Steamboat is ready to run with this title for a long time, but it ends up lasting six weeks because his son is born. He asks Vince for time off to spend with his son. Vince says, Sure, you can have some time off, but you're going to have to drop the title. Like, I'm not taking the Intercontinental Champion off the road. And the, that's the basically the end of Ricky Steamboat's WWF career right there. Which is wild, because I, I, I still kind of think of Ricky Steamboat as the Intercontinental Champion, despite the fact that he only ever held it. And maybe that's just because this match is so fixed in our memories. Yeah, you think Honky Tonk Man's a little bitter about that? Honky Tonk Man held that belt for 64 weeks. But he Steamboat never, held it great. Yeah, but he just never had a moment like this one, you know? Yeah, um, it's just, it's too bad. Because I would have loved to see a longer Steamboat WWF run. And really after this, he has his run with Flair in 89. He goes back to the WBF in 90 or 91, has that stupid run as the Dragon, and then by the time he goes back to WCW, he's kind of past it, and then he has his back injury and he's done. Um, just an unfor- you know, a great career, but yeah, could have been a lot more, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. Like I, I really, really think that Steamboat could have been kind of the definitive guy with that title, he was literally the picture-perfect, exactly inter- perfect Intercontinental Champion that they wanted. It just, wrong time, wrong place. Yeah, and we'll get to kind of Honky Tonk Man's Intercontinental title run and the fallout from that with WrestleMania Four next week. Yep. Uh, mean Gene goes back, we go backstage, Mean Gene interviews Jake Roberts and celebrity guest Alice Cooper. So there's, I mean, there's still celebrities on this show, but not in as prominent of roles. No celebrities wrestling. They're more in the background. They just don't need celebrities the way they did the first couple times. And like that's a key part of this is that they just don't need them. Yeah. Like this is the first time that wrestling is big enough or WWF is big enough to kind of go it on its own. Yeah, as Vince would say, we don't need celebrities. Our wrestlers are the celebrities now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this good. is. Jake the Snake Roberts against the Honky Tonk Man. I think this was Jake's face turn when Honky Tonk Man blasted him with the guitar. I think so, yeah. I think it was kind of a double turn, too, because they brought Hon- Vince thought Honky Tonk Man was a baby face. <laughs> Fucking Vince would think that. <laughs> 1987, and he's already 30 years behind the times. It's amazing. Oh my god. The fact that he made it here is... uh... Vince thought the fucking Elvis impersonator was going to be a babyface in 1987. Because that's what Vince wanted to see. Yes. Yeah, so the story is they were doing TV up in... And they were taping TV, I think, up in Calgary, where he had had a long run in the Stampede territory as a heel. And like... Honky warns Vince, like, you sent me out there, they're gonna boo me, and Vince doesn't buy it, and then he just gets shit on, like, people are throwing stuff at him, and they kind of keep at, they keep at the heel thing, the babyface thing for a couple weeks, and then 
kind of give it up and turn him heel, and he ends up being one of the great heels of the era. Oh my god. I mean, good on Honky for seeing that coming. But goddamn, that's just one of those stories that make you wonder how the fuck Vince ever made it to this point. Yeah, so of course this match was set up um, when Honky blasted Jake with a guitar on the snake pit. Um, this is kind of the famous non-gimmicked guitar. It was such a flimsy guitar, they didn't think they needed to gimmick it. Unfortunately, it turned out it had steel bars inside of it because it was so flimsy. Oh, yeah, it's brutal when you see Jake get hit with this thing. Like, looking closely, you can actually see the metal inside of it, and Honky just wails on him with it. You can just see like his spine compress, and then he like folds up and falls over like jello. It's disturbing. Yeah, um, I don't know if this was the beginning of Jake's drug problems, but I'm sure it contributed to it. I think Honky owes him a few paychecks. Yeah. Honky would disagree if you can believe that. Oh, yeah. I bet he would. (laughs) (sighs) Um, Honky sadly does not have his classic entrance music yet. He's got some other rock and roll song. It's just not the same without uh, the long sideburns and his hair slicked back. I got my long sideburns and my hair hair slicked back. back. Coming to your town in a pink Cadillac. He's the honky tonk man. That's a great song. <laughs> it's so catchy and so so hateable. I heard a story. There was a there was it was one of those situations where they have a house show and like the entire crew was on a bus stuck in traffic and the only guy who's at the arena is honky tonk man. So they just send him out there for the first thirty minutes of the show to dance and sing. And he finishes and he leaves and he comes back down. He's like, you people want an encore? Let's do it. (laughs) Kills 30 to 45 minutes until the rest of the crew can get there. God, that's genius. Yeah. Um, Jake jumps honky before the bell. We're going honky just keeps powdering in classic honky fashion. He takes over after Jimmy Hart distracts Jake. Jake makes his comeback. Signals for the DDT, but Jimmy Hart grabs his leg. Honky gets the roll up and gets the one, two, three, and this is just a stunning upset. God, it really only seemed to happen to Jake, where in these big moments where he was supposed to get a big win, he'd always do the job. But maybe it's just because Jake didn't really care. It or like, feels like Jake never beat anybody in his entire career, but, but he like, didn't need and- to. Yeah, Jake's a little bit bulletproof in the way that kind of Jericho would prove to be later, where it didn't really matter if he got wins, but it still felt weird that he yeah. never, ever won. I'm trying to think. Does Jake Roberts ever actually win a match at WrestleMania? Like beat George Wells the year before this, but after this, it's like goes to a draw with Rude at four, beats Andre by DQ at five, gets counted out against DiBiase at six. He wins the blindfold match against Martel at seven. That's kind of his lone proper WrestleMania victory. Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. He, he didn't need titles. He didn't need to win his big matches. He was always going to stay over because nobody could cut a promo like him. That's true. Uh, Jake chases off Honky. Cooper and Jake jump Jimmy Hart. Uh, they let Damien loose. Cooper gets a hold of him and like seems confused by what he's supposed to do next. So Jake seemingly gets annoyed and kind of rips the snake away from him. Like, I- I'm sure that they kind of rehearsed it in that moment, but just 
just kind of put yourself in Alice Cooper's shoes for a second. Like you're in front of 80,000 people and you're holding a fucking snake and you're like, uh, what was that again? Yeah. It seems like I've had a recurring nightmare about that situation. Yeah. And just like a, a testy wrestler is across the ring from you tapping his foot. And you're like, uh, Jake Roberts uh, is a huge guy, which yeah. we seem to forget. But Jake Roberts is like six foot five, 260. Pretty intimidating. Jake had the best gimmick, too, because when he started getting into shape, Vince told him not to. Yeah, that was the best thing. It's like, hey, don't ever cut your mullet. Don't ever shave your mustache. Don't ever wear <laughs> we good stuff. We want you to be fat and grimy. Even <laughs> Don't shower after your matches. Just go home. <laughs> Keep the snake in a fucking burlap sack <laughs> like you're homeless. A pretty good deal. Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. We're, get, we're way into this show now. We've had 10 matches, and somehow we've got one more before the main event. The biggest afterthought uh, first, in WWF history. <laughs> Gene announces the attendance is 93,173. Gorilla and Jesse asked, did they count us? I think they counted <laughs> each of them about 2,000 times. Yep, I think so too. Uh, then we've got the Killer Bees against the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov, seemingly the beginning of the feud between the Sheik and that no-good motherfucker, Brian Blair. This match... <laughs> Does this have to... Like, why? Can we just get to the main event already? I think this is the beginning. I don't know if it's officially is, but this feels like the beginning of the cool down match before yeah. the main event. Like that's a WrestleMania staple that persists to this day. You can't just go hot, 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 hot. And then directly into the main event. You got to give them a chance to take a piss before the big show. You got to get them to cool down so that they can heat back up for Hulk. You can't just, because if they get exhausted and then the main event comes, they won't enjoy it the same way. Like it, that's, that's wrestling booking 101, but it's that means that you've always got to have a stupid ass match sandwiched in between greatness. Yeah, and this is a pretty stupid ass match. Yeah, it's as stupid um, ass as it gets. Volkov goes to sing the Soviet anthem, but he's interrupted by Hacksaw Jim Duggan. This is Duggan's first pay per view appearance. Uh, he's supposed to get a monster push, but six weeks after this, he and she get busted riding together on the Jersey Turnpike <laughs> with cocaine in the car. God I don't know what it. was worse, the cocaine or a face and a heel riding together. I think it was the face and the heel riding together, if I'm being yeah. totally honest. It did lead them to implement drug testing, but yeah, Duggan gets fired, but you know, brought back within a year, but never gets quite the huge push I think they were going to give him. Still ends up being a big star, but they had real big plans for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe they were thinking about kind of moving away from true American patriot Hulk Hogan. That's what his whole gimmick is. But they still wanted that guy, and Jim Duggan was born to be that guy. He's just a walking American flag. So that's what Vince has always wanted. And he was probably pretty pissed that it got taken away from him. It's a standard tag match for a few minutes, and then Duggan gets in and hits Sheik with the two-by-four, and like the crowd is angry, and like the announcers are just kind of deflated by this. Like Gorilla doesn't even really defend it. <laughs> and if Gorilla's not defending you, like what is no, there? You really crossed a line. Like this uh, would be a great way for somebody to debut as a heel today. 
is to come out like swinging the American flag around and interfering, costing baby faces matches, and then just like yelling, ho! Yeah, they, they think he's yelling, yo, at this point. Uh. Um, mean Gene interviews Andre, then a Hogan Andre video package, and now Bob Euchre is introduced as the ring announcer, Mary Hart as the timekeeper. This is the Andre the Giant um, soundbite that was in the opening package for years and years. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Andre and Heenan out first, riding in the cart. They are literally pelted with garbage, but Andre is waving to the crowd the whole time. Just genius. Yeah, I, know I, I don't say know that word a lot. He, like, doesn't know how to be a heel or if he's just messing with them. Probably messing with them. But like it's such a good juxtap juxtaposition when he does it this way because it's like the same thing he would always do, but now it has this like real dark, like dubious feel to it because he's doing it right next to Heenan, and it's just like fuck you, dude, fuck you, betrayed us. Yeah, and this is the point where it's pitch black in the arena except for the spotlight. And these are some iconic photos that were taken of this yeah. event, just like the moment where he's coming down or the moment where he's hunched over the ropes on his way back. And then there's the one, I guarantee you everyone and their mother has seen this, of Hogan like doing his fucking pose with his arms like straight out next to his head, doing like the thunder pose, like on his thing going, going back to the ring at the end. Like this, it just was perfect for that moment. Like just the light shining off of the wrestlers like that. Like they would get so good at cinematography and staging things like this later. But this particular time, it's just... Those some of those magical times where they just get it right. Then Hogan makes his entrance, giant pop. He doesn't ride the cart. He walks down the aisle, but he's so jacked up, he does it in pretty good time. Yep. Epic, epic entrance. And now we've got our main event for the heavyweight championship of the world. Hulk Hogan defends against Andre the Giant. Uh, they stare down. Hogan is joined with Andre. As Jesse points out, Hogan is nearly as tall as the giant who Gorilla still claims is seven foot five. So Hogan grew to seven foot three overnight. Yeah, impressive. Yeah. I mean, Andre here only appears to be two or three inches taller than Hogan. I'd say Hogan's probably six five or six six. Andre's six eight or six nine. Probably Absolutely. shrunk a little bit because of his back problems. Um, and it's just Andre does a phenomenal job of portraying Andre the Giant, if you understand what I mean. Like, he's not that guy anymore, but for the for the time that he's in the ring for this match, you wouldn't know it. Like, he's like he's intimidating, he and he, he's in a lot he of moves pain. okay. Yeah, like... But in the like fact he actually that he does moves so little is what makes him intimidating. Like he doesn't right. need to do anything. So he manages to fool you into thinking that he's the Andre the Giant of old, which is pretty great. Yeah. Um, so have you heard kind of the Hogan interviews where he talks about this match and kind of claims that, like, he didn't know he was going to go over or he didn't know that Andre was going to let him beat him? Now, I think how that began, like, the truth of the situation that I can believe is that they told Hogan he was going to go over, but he wasn't sure that Andre was going to let that yeah. happen until it happened. 
Yeah, I mean, he wasn't sure. I really believe Andre would go into business. I mean, I know it's a different time, but like that Andre would actually like shoot on Hogan and try to take the title. I mean, but he's headshot on people in the ring before if he felt like it. Yeah, he had. And for Hogan, like all it would take is Andre not going up and it's over. Like the whole angle, the whole match, the whole show is dead in the water. Which is ironically how this match starts. Uh, Hogan tries to slam him and can't do it. That gets the one, the two, very close to the three. Kind of a phantom pin here. Yeah, I just love the idea that they got a near fall out of a failed body slam. But doesn't it, I mean, just right off the bat, doesn't it establish how dangerous Andre is? Like, he almost pinned Hogan by falling on him. Yeah, and that was the purpose of the entire match. It's like Hogan doesn't get any real offense in at all in this match. He really doesn't. Like he gets his fucking ass kicked. He gets in nothing. Like it was very smart to build the match this way to basically give Hogan no comeback until the real comeback at the end. Yeah, I mean it even it protects Andre because really Andre falls to the most lethal combination in all of wrestling: the axe bomber and the fucking leg drop the axe bomber the greatest name for the crappiest move in wrestling history um andre just dominates he slams hogan with absolutely no problem uh he walks over him which i've always loved as a heel big guy move hogan starts his comeback but andre boots him doesn't really hit the jaw kind of hits him in the stomach um Andre gets the bear hug. Hogan fights out. He charges, but just gets chopped to the mat. Um, Andre's just kicking his ass. But like, and this is the thing. It's like we've talked before. Hulk Hogan's magic is in his selling, in his babyface fire. So that's the perfect way for this match to go. It's because Hogan just keeps coming up and keeps trying to chop him down. And every single time he tries, Hogan or Andre just slaps him down like it's nothing. But he keeps coming back. And that's what makes this a compelling match is that the cr- every time he gets back up off the mat and attacks Andre again, the crowd goes a little bit more insane and a little bit more insane and a little bit more. Yeah, the, cr- the crowd starts getting antsy at some point. It's just kind of like, come on, come on, Hulk, come on. We know you can do it. Right. Um, they go to the floor. Andre goes for a headbutt but misses and hits the ring post. And he's hurt for the first time in the match. And he hurt himself naturally um hogan throws up the mats and like an idiot tries to pile drive andre that of (laughs) course is not going to work andre proceeds to backdrop hogan and it's pretty rough like he gets hogan about halfway up and hogan just kind of rolls off his back yeah andre just doesn't have any upper body strength at this point and you kind of notice in the match that he was able to slam hogan and I think Hogan did like 95% of the work on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can just see Andre's in agony. I mean, it really reminds me of um, Shawn Michaels, in the WrestleMania Michaels. 14 match. Yeah, yeah exactly. You can just, there are points where you can see he's leaning on the ropes just for support. And he's fucked up. It's amazing. He wrestled another five years after this. Just try to understand the generosity of this moment that we're about to talk about from Andre the Giant's perspective. 
For 20 years, he's been establishing a rub that he's eventually going to give to somebody or not. Like he doesn't have to give it to anybody. He is the most credible person in wrestling history to this point, an unbeatable monster. That is in a rub like no one has ever had to offer in the history of professional wrestling. He is in unbelievable pain. He is not Hulk Hogan's best friend or biggest fan. But in this moment, Andre the Giant is going to go out there and wrestle a 12-minute match and put over Hulk Hogan clean. It may be the most generous act in wrestling history. Yeah. Um, so they go back into the ring. Hogan explodes with a big clothesline, knocking Andre down. Yeah. I can't tell if Andre was supposed to go down here. I, he went down very awkwardly. I wonder if he actually just like took the hit and was supposed to just kind of stumble but couldn't stay up. I can't tell if he was trying to take a bump and just couldn't make his body do it right, so he just kind of fell down, or if he just fell down. But it actually wound up working because the crowd fucking loses it. I thought it looked. I thought it looked kind of great because it looked so realistically weird that he yeah, didn't flat could, back. If he had just flat backed, it would have actually felt a little weird because, like, why would Andre the Giant yeah. fucking flat back for no anything? Way did he hit him that hard? But hit him hard enough to jar him and he stumbles down you can see exactly and it's kind of cool because it's like he's chopping down the mountain he's finally there's a weakness like he's got an opportunity yeah um andre gets to his feet goes slam me boss hogan gets him up for the body slam hurt around the world crowd goes ape shit and here's the thing it's not a great body slam it's kind of a shit one but yeah. It's awesome. It's you it's see like match. all the it's, it's, flash it's, bulbs going off and probably the greatest single moment in wrestling history. Absolutely, and like and fucking Hulk being Hulk, he's tried to like mythologize this and like <laughs> oh brother, the muscles in my arms were bursting as I lifted the giant. The Dead seven weight, foot. but I got him up. Yeah, the seven foot five, eight hundred pound Andre the Giant in front of two hundred and fifty thousand people, yeah. and I slammed him through the ring, through the floor, and all the way into the fires of hell. Yeah, nobody can spin a yarn like Hulk Hogan can spin a yarn. Dude, I once made a list of all like the insane lies of Hulk Hogan, and it was pretty epic. Yeah, I believe it, man. He's got quite a history of that. Yeah, he um, he hasn't done a ton of podcasts, but he was he did a two parter on Jericho that was awesome. Like just the, I mean, yeah, a lot of insane, clearly false stories, but just hearing him tell them was great. Absolutely, I got to listen to that because I, I love his bullshit so much. Yeah, and th this one was full of it. Um, so Hogan drops the big leg, covers, gets the one, two, three. Hogan retains the title in one of the great title matches in history. Yeah, like I, I can't say enough about this. Uh, I don't think they could have possibly had a better match. No, given the physical limitations, Andre does everything he can do, and Hulk Hogan does a carry job. Like I, I know that that's a lot of people aren't gonna like hearing that Hulk Hogan is capable of a carry job, but Hulk Hogan carries Andre the Giant to a good match here. Even if and Andre it's... were capable of doing more, I don't think you'd want him to. I think the match is better because Hogan didn't put him knock him off his feet until the very end. Absolutely. And like I said, there's room for Andre to still look incredibly strong. Like it's not like Hogan beat his ass. 
No. Like he got Andre lucky had with that Andre had him beat 10 seconds into the match with that slam. Yeah. I mean, literally, like Hogan, like Andre hurt himself. Hogan got on that pen. Yeah. Hogan got lucky with the clothesline, hit every big move that he had. These days, he would have had to have hit the leg drop from the top or something. Yeah. And five of them. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's, um, that's not really an indictment of today. It's just kind of funny to think about. Hogan doing a top rope leg drop would have been amazing. Oh, I kind of wish just one time that should have happened. Like, people would have lost their fucking shit. Like, his hips would have exploded in opposite directions. <laughs> yeah. Um, Andre is just in absolute agony. Like, you can see the anger and rage on his face as he's leaving the ring. Heenan, as they're in the cart going back, Heenan's face is buried in his hands. He can't believe Hogan beat him again. And that's the twin images of them looking so defeated looking back in their cart. And Hulk Hogan, like, raising the belt in triumph in his cart are magic. Like, this moment, as they constructed it and as it turned out, could not possibly have been any more perfect. It went exactly as scripted and even better than they possibly could have even dreamed it could go. Yeah, I don't think I would change anything about this main event. No, I mean, it's perfect. Usually I I can find some things I'd nitpick, but nah, wouldn't have done anything different here. We may not say this about a single other segment that we ever cover, but this is perfect. Like, you can't touch it. It's great. Yeah, massive celebration for Hogan after the match. You know, crowd is going insane. Yeah, this is... This was pretty much the peak. I mean, this is WrestleMania five will do more pay-per-view buys because of the expanded availability, but this was the peak of the eighties boom. Absolutely. And maybe the peak of all time. You know, you'd have to, you know, this question, whether 17 WrestleMania 17 surpasses this. There is a strong argument that this is the climax of professional wrestling as a thing. There's a very, very strong argument to be made for that, that, it Everything may never was built more popular this. in America than this. Yeah. And that's incredible to think about. But I mean, you can make that argument and it's hard to argue against. Like 17 is really the only other option. We're clearly past it now, unless something's going to come up that's something way different. would really have to change right now. I think with yeah. just the landscape of how it works now, I don't think it's possible. I think that you'll it's never such be a in more front diversified of entertainment. Yeah. Like entertainment's just different now. Um, yeah. It, this is still the, I mean, back then in the eighties, this is three channels. Like there's a lot fewer options of what you're going to watch. Um, yeah, just, just an awesome WrestleMania. Like they don't, man, I love this show. I think I, I, it's not my favorite, but it's my favorite of this era by a pretty wide margin. Oh my God. Yeah. Like if you just want to watch one show to come, not so great. You can watch this show and just use it as a stand in for the Hulk Hogan era in the 80s like that's okay like this show encompasses that in this entire period in a way that like you could just show it to anybody and just be like this was the 80s in wwe here it is like all of these people doing this yeah great show this is when wrestlemania kind of lives up to the hype and becomes the entertainment spectacle and this is I think something they're still chasing they haven't been able to quite recreate something this massive you know they would finally do a bigger WrestleMania crowd with WrestleMania 32, but that was just nowhere near the same kind of spectacle. 
Do you think that it says something about the way that wrestling and the company has changed? Like the only comparable WrestleMania to this is 17, right? And that, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're talking. I mean, like, so th- there are some WrestleManias that did, you know, over a million buys, but it's just with it's a million buys is nowhere near as impressive, you know, 20 years later when so many more people have access to pay per view. Yeah, I guess maybe Roxena is the only other one, like from recent times that you would put up close to this, but they end on a negative like 17 ends on a negative note like the heel like they over they kill they kill their business i we will get to that and i will rant for hours about how stupid that was but can you imagine can you just imagine if like a heel had come out at the end of this and fucked with the moment Uh, it would have been really dumb i mean that's that would be the temptation a lot of promoters would have done that because they would have been like well gotta get some heat and like, what a fucking disaster that would have been. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Maybe in a different world where Andre is healthy, you want to put the belt on Andre and give him a massive run. But that you know is not an option with he the way he is physically at this point. Why do you think they? Well, okay. I I'm gonna answer my own question. I was gonna say why do you think they never put the belt on Andre? And I guess the answer is because you can never have him lose. Yeah, and he Andre the Giant is an attraction, is the way the McMahons looked at it. He doesn't he doesn't need a belt. And the other thing was, they did the the key to protecting Andre's mystique was not to use him too much. That you would only book him in a town once a year. That you would lend him out to other territories because you didn't want to use him too much. You couldn't book him in the garden every month, or people would get tired of him. And this is why the big show never became anywhere near the star that he could have been because he was overexposed and used on TV and abused. Um, they didn't protect the big show, even though he you know, was as big as Andre the Giant, was a more gifted athlete than Andre the Giant, was a much better talker than Andre, never became one-tenth the star that Andre did because they didn't protect him. Absolutely. That's a great point. They never yeah. did. They never kept him off screen they never moved him around they just it chopped just, to whoever yeah, unfortunately but in that era i don't know could you i don't think could you have lent they didn't really have relationships in japan or mexico to lend them out i don't think that there was room for a big show booked like that and the undertaker on the same in the same company because they already had that special attraction guy yeah and but and it's the same reason you know undertaker rarely held the belt in his career because it's just it's not he doesn't the undertaker the undertaker having a belt doesn't really add anything to him whereas having the belt on a steve austin or a bret hart or the rock really completes them right um yeah it's just the andre i I don't i don't usually like the you know doesn't need the belt because i tend to look at it the opposite way that the belt needs top stars to feel important, but I think Andre's sort of an exception to that. I agree. And I think there's there's a different world where, yeah, he could have absolutely been the champion, but they didn't want to beat him, and that was perfectly reasonable, and he was such a big attraction for so many years because of that. Can you imagine how hard it must have been to book like main event storylines in these days? Because your top three stars, arguably, are Andre, Piper, and Hogan, none of which is willing to do a job to anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
it's not that hard because it's it's just the heel factory. Like you just need to build new monsters for Hogan, and Hogan beats them. That's true. And There's only like five baby faces in the whole company, and just fifty heels for them to fight. Yeah, it's just a. I mean, and they probably had it down to a science of okay, we bring in the new heels. He does squash matches on TV eight weeks in a row, and then he gets in a feud with Hillbilly Jim, and then he moves on to you know somebody else and then he moves on to Duggan and once he's beaten Duggan then he's ready for Hogan um, they definitely had this down to an exact formula um, back in the 70s with Bruno's challengers they knew exactly how many times they needed to run the loop with that guy squashing jobbers before they could move up the ladder and eventually get to Bruno but yeah I mean it's I think it's easier to book then than now because you have so much less you have different TV. People's expectations are different. Nobody expects to see Hulk Hogan wrestling on TV back then. That's true. Definitely true. Yeah. So I think that's a wrap uh, for WrestleMania three. You know, the, the show, the legacy of which I think they'll always be chasing because I don't think they can ever quite recreate this. No, you'll never have a moment like this. They're, Wrestling existed in the United States for 80 years before this. It has existed for, what, is it, what are we at, 30 years now since this? Just over 30. Yeah. Um, we haven't had another moment like this before since. It's yeah. safe to say we probably never will. Yeah. Um, not to say that WrestleMania still won't be big, but yeah, just they can't quite do this. And next week we'll continue the march to WrestleMania with their attempt to do something completely different as they would hold a tournament for the WWF championship in Atlantic city, New Jersey. What are we going to talk about next week? The rematch of Andre and Hulk Hogan. That nobody really cared about. That was a total afterthought, a shittily booked tournament that made no sense. Yeah. Um, a very strange show on the whole, just a, a total misfire in my mind, but and with one of the great lead ups of all time, because I think that main event special they ran on NBC is pretty much a perfect hour of wrestling. Absolutely. And I think yeah. we're going to have to in depth cover the question that has to be asked when you watch this show. Should Ted DiBiase have become world champion? <sighs> I think yeah. every other promoter would have put the belt on DiBiase, but the fact that he didn't was part of what made Vince special. Yeah. I mean, we can debate all of that stuff next week, but there's just a shit ton to talk about. Yeah. We'll be back next week and we'll see who can hit the jackpot in Atlantic City.